Chasing Lights Chapter 8 What is it like to live in the bush? People often come to the bush expecting quiet. They are not disappointed. Our days in the cities, suburbs, even on farms are filled with a constant sonic wallpaper. I forget that I live near an airport or next to a train station, not because they are quiet, but because it's normal. I don't notice the diesel bus with the shrill air brakes, the misaligned fan motor in my home, and the sounds of shoes on pavement, along with fragments of conversations, a baby crying, or the hammering of construction a block away. I barely know those sounds exist, so much so that my thoughts are usually all that I hear. But when those sounds aren't there, when... A fish splashing in the water or a hawk's gentle landing on a branch is all that there is. It can be challenging, as most people expect, that the lack of urban sounds will clear the head, refresh the spirit, and relax the body. And that usually doesn't happen, at least for a while. Some people don't ever relax in the bush, and those that do usually have to work at it. I suspect the reason for that is the thinking. Thoughts are still at a high enough volume in one's head to drown out a stray ambulance siren in the bush with no other sounds to compete. The voices in one's head are still at full volume. Free from distraction, the anxiety and the thoughts can spin around at full speed to the point that a breath of wind in the breeze is interpreted as a threat. A bear, maybe, come to attack in the middle of the night, and that, by the way, never happens unless you sleep with all your food and garbage in the tent with you. There is an antidote to quiet the noise and anxiety in the mind. Talk with someone. If there's no one around, talk to yourself. Otherwise, things get loopy. I've heard stories of people that went to the bush to be alone, only then to quickly bug out and leave in short order. Some people are okay alone, but it isn't easy. The first year we owned the place, Dad hired someone to be a caretaker during hunting season. His supply list was very heavy on booze, which was all gone when we got back, but his survival supplies on the list were some oil paints, brushes, and a canvas. At the end of his stay, he gave us a painting of a distressed 19th century sailing ship crashing through waves in a storm. I loved that painting. I thought it looked just like the N.C. Wyeth illustrations from Treasure Island, and looking at it, I could almost hear the panicked shouts of the sailors on board. We would have guests out to our place from time to time. You know, kids, they adapted pretty quickly, but adults, particularly those from big cities, had a lot of trouble sleeping. And once I remember, when exploring an isolated bay up the lake, we came across a small army surplus Quonset hut in a small clearing. 
The fire had been out for a long time, maybe weeks or months, and the door stood half open. We called out several times, but there was no one there, and we decided to check inside. I was certain that we would find a dead body inside, but instead we just found a tousled beds, garbage, and Playboy magazines strewn about, and bits of camping equipment. The air was thick with the smells of stale sweat and rot. And even though we never figured out what happened there, we were really eager to get away. Maybe the silence just got to whomever stayed there. And I hoped that he was okay. My brothers, sisters, and I were usually noisy enough to fill the silence, but we felt lonely too sometimes. Once our last shout, shriek, or laugh stopped echoing across the lake, the silence took over again quickly. With no television, no telephones, and no next-door neighbors, we had to make peace with the silence. It had to be normal. So we did. And it did. Fridays were the best day. All afternoon, we'd wait by the CB radio for a call from down the lakes. When Dad finally got to the landing, the lodge would call to us on the public channel to let us know. And while he settled in for a bit at the lodge, we all threw our life vests and ran down to the dock. My brother and I would untie the ropes while Mom got the engine started. Once we jumped in with our sisters, she backed up to the middle of the lake, reversed the engine, and stepped on it. That was always a thrill, watching Mom push the throttle all the way down, watch the waves behind us surge up above us while the back of the boat seemed to dive down in the water, and the front rose. In a moment or two, the bottom rose as well, until we were just barely in the water. Once we were on the step, Mom would throttle back a little bit to save energy, but we were still moving quickly with the air hitting us in the faces fast and cold. And once we got down to the docks at Lake Louise, 20 to 30 minutes later, we would tie up and then see Dad at the top of the hill with his truck. He would drive down closer to the docks to unload. He was always excited to see us and eager to get out to Tyone. The back of the truck was filled with food and supplies. I don't think I've ever been so excited about groceries as I was after a week in the bush. There were always treats in the grocery bag, so much so that we were told to stop pulling things out. The shopping list had to be finished by Sunday night since there was no way to call during the week. It was a long wait for my favorite cereal to show up. There were other treats too, books, toys sometimes, and, and once a 22 caliber rifle for my brother and me. I, I didn't see the Preston Sturges film Christmas in July until I was much older, but it was certainly redolent of Friday afternoons in the summer for all of us. The same kind of giddy joy found in a Hollywood screwball comedy from the 1940s could be had on the back of a pickup truck near the docks. There were magazines and newspapers, too. Knowing what was going on in the world, even if it was a week or two after the fact, was a particular pleasure. And one week, I got a copy of Time magazine, and on the cover there was an image from a new science fiction movie that had just opened in New York and California. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. A science fiction movie? At the time, Hollywood hated science fiction. They seemed to think the future was bleak stuff. There was On the Beach, Planet of the Apes, and Soylent Green. Basically, all of them foretold a miserable end to everything. 2001, A Space Odyssey actually made spaceflight seem boring and computers homicidal. Anything more fun had such a low budget 
that space basically looked like the inside of a sound studio with Christmas lights. Star Trek on television was a notable exception, not because they had a great budget, but because they somehow got around it with their storytelling. But that's all there was at that point. There were no Marvel Comics movies, no Contact, no Inception, no Matrix, no Jurassic Park, no Star Trek movies. All that fun was only able to happen once Star Wars was released. It felt like the impossible had come to pass. I had no idea what the plot was, what to expect from the movie. All I could see were pictures of people lining up to see it, along with select stills of the actors and the spaceships, all looking exactly like an illustration on the cover of a sci-fi book. I read the article multiple times on my way home, talked about it with my brother, and imagined it for months, what this amazing movie must be. It was three or four months before we went to see it. There were no longer lines to get in, but it was still a full theater. Mom or Dad took us and a couple of neighbor kids to see it, then dropped us off at the theater. I saw a lot of movies that way when we were kids, always with change in my pocket for the payphone to call home and get a ride back. And like most people who saw it in 1977, I can't forget the first minutes of Star Wars. It, it started with the most visually exciting introduction exposition I had ever seen scrawling up and away from the viewer. Then a moon or two, then a planet, then a spaceship getting shot by lasers, then the pursuing battleship slowly moving and filling the screen from above until it lands a fatal hit and brings the little ship on board where there are robots and soldiers and a Darth Vader, whatever that is, all in under five minutes. This is what we were waiting for our entire lives. Standing outside the movie theater waiting to be picked up, I felt exhilarated, optimistic, and convinced that my life would never be the same again. You see, I was like Luke Skywalker in the middle of nowhere, looking up at the double moon and longing for a bigger life, one where I could be a hero, where I could experience adventure, where there wasn't so much silence. There was a lot of wildlife on Lake Tyone. With so few people around, it was more their environment than it was ours. Eagles were common at a time when they were endangered in the lower 48. We would see them high up in the sky, hovering like silent helicopters, waiting to strike. Hawks, loons, ptarmigan, barn swallows, along with so many birds that I have no idea what they were called, could be seen every day. Moose and muskrat, porcupines and squirrels, all fascinated Ralph, and he let us know when one was near. You know, Ralph, at this point, had some difficulty seeing or hearing, but his nose and his bark were fully intact. He would often chase squirrels for hours just for the thrill. They got in on the game and would run up a tree to then yell down at him as he barked up. Sometimes he would get up on his hind legs and bark even louder up the tree while the squirrels increased their volume in return, often, though, from another tree entirely. Ralph was known for barking up the wrong tree more than once. But the squirrels understood and played the game with him whenever he was willing to bark. One year, we spent Thanksgiving on Lake Tyone. Now, by the end of November, there was multiple feet of snow on the ground, and the temperatures were between negative 40 and negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The lakes had a couple of feet of ice on top, turning them into a solid field or road. 
My father drove our snow machine, an Arctic cat, Cheetah, pulling a trailer in back and hauling all the supplies. The Cheetah was a manic beast, happiest only when it was going well above the speed limits set for cars. My brother and I learned to ride it earlier. I've never ridden a motorcycle, but I imagine that it isn't much different than riding that beast. It was probably not the best thing for a couple of prepubescent boys to be riding unsupervised, especially when we took it up to 100 miles per hour on an iced back road. It scared us when the needle touched the 100 mark, and we never tried it again. It was clear to us that if anything went wrong, it would go very wrong. That was the limit of my risk tolerance, I think. While my father traveled the long slog over the frozen lakes, the rest of us rode in a ski plane. It was a quick ride, then a soft landing on the lake. It was very, very cold. We hurried up the hill to the main cabin and raced to get warm. There were two sources of heat at the cabin, fast and slow. Fast was a 50-gallon oil drum turned on its side and mounted with a pipe chimney on the back end. There was a heavy metal door attached to the front. We'd open the door, crumple up some newspaper, then put small split logs on top, all while still wearing parkas and hats. Fingers numb, someone would grab the kitchen matches and strike a few times until it sparked. Then, with fingers shaking, hold the match under several parts of the crumpled newspaper until flames started to leap around the logs. We would keep the door open for a little while and watch. This stove had an amazing draft, so there was never a need to blow on coals. It did it for us automatically. And within about 15 minutes, we stopped seeing clouds of our breath and could take off our coats. And once the fast fire and the oil drum died down a little, I, I loved sitting on a chair facing it, and putting my feet up on the warm steel. When it's that cold outside, everything warm is beautiful, even a recycled oil barrel. It was a fast fire, though, and needed new fuel every 20 minutes or so. Far more helpful was the oil stove with its slow and steady heat. But no one liked lighting the oil stove. It was finicky and awkward and could take an hour of work to light it. There had to be just the right amount of oil in the burn area and just the right temperature. I remember leaning over the opening for the longest time with long matches in hand trying to get it started. I was determined to become an expert in lighting the stove, even though I had very little clue about what to do other than to be patient. I learned early on that most machines would respond better if one was patient and calm with them. My father taught me that with his impatience and anger with machines that didn't work. Of course, toasters, washing machines, generators, and oil stoves don't really care if one is patient or nice, I knew that even then, but if one can avoid feeling angry, one can then observe, can think, can solve. Since in the bush there is no one around who can fix things, learning how to not be angry at machines is useful. Eventually, the oil started to burn, the cabin became warm and cozy, by the time my father arrived. It was a good thing. Riding in an open snowmobile and below zero temperatures is painful since one is sitting still 
while cold air hits every part of you at 30 to 50 miles per hour. The air feels like spikes hitting exposed skin. My father was dressed extremely well for the cold. He even had a motorcycle helmet with a visor to protect his face. But the cold always finds a way in. His beard was frozen solid, and he had this strange blasted expression on his face. Sitting in front of the drum with a cup of tea in his hand, he slowly warmed. A note here about cold in Alaska versus cold in books and movies is probably needed. If someone is truly cold after a harrowing journey over the ice, the single worst thing they can do is drink a cup of brandy. Alcohol makes people feel warm by moving the heat from the center of their body to the extremities. Brandy may be relatively harmless if your name is Heathcliff, you were written by a brilliant teenager named Emily Bronte, and you live in the West Yorkshire Moors, but otherwise, something warm and non-alcoholic is less likely to kill you. My mom worked to get everything thawed and ready for dinner. A lot of work had been done ahead of time, but she still needed to use the old propane-fueled stove and oven to finish it all off. We helped as best we could. Music was put on the old tape recorder, and we settled in for a beautiful holiday feast at the lake. Most people have told me that they don't like this holiday, that it's all about eating too much Edwardian-style food and then going shopping for Christmas the next day. And if that's what Thanksgiving is, I agree. But I remember a Thanksgiving by lantern light. All of us together, and all alone in a world of snow and ice. Instead of Black Friday Christmas shopping, I remember a clear, bright, and silent morning. Outside the window were suddenly hundreds of caribou in single file walking across the lake. Caribou, they're a form of deer uh, that are known for their large antlers and even larger migrating herds that number in the tens or hundreds of thousands. And not only were they quiet, but it seemed that as they methodically crossed the ice, they were somehow absorbing whatever ambient sound there might have been around them. I'm not an expert on matters spiritual, but based on what we saw and heard that morning, I believe that we were blessed by their presence. In the afternoon, anxious to get out of the cabin and do something physical, all the kids suited up in ski pants, boots, and coats. We played around in the snow, sliding down the little hill on our rear ends, but then my brother and I started taking the cheetah out. We kept the sled attached to the back so we could give our sisters rides as well. And we went out onto the lake and sped across to the other side in just an instant, a distance that always took a while in a rowboat. We made big circles in the snow. We rode up and down to the house until there was a solid packed down path. Mostly we made noise and used up a tank of gas. Unable to take the trip back by snow machine, we hid the cheetah behind the house before the pilot came back to pick us up. We took off from the lake and were back at our car in just a few moments. It wasn't a lot of time that we spent in the bush during the winter, but it carried a punch. None of us 
will ever forget it. Unfortunately, when we returned the following June, the cheetah was gone. It always felt creepy to me, imagining someone hunting around the place when we were gone and just taking something. But it was probably for the best. The other snow machine we had was far less thrilling and a lot less dangerous to ride. When it's silent, it also feels like time goes slower. When I asked myself what I did all summer, there there isn't a flurry of activities to remember. In the first summer, we were told that every building had to be painted. Dozens of cans of barn red and white paint were brought from Anchorage along with rollers and brushes. We were terrible painters and any initial enthusiasm withered away quickly. The wood, the wood, it was so dry that it seemed to be a sponge drinking the paint off our brushes and rollers. Our breaks became longer and our days off became more frequent. It wasn't until we saw my mother keeping at it every day that we were guilted back into line. And eventually the painting was finished and all the buildings now matched. They still leaned in different directions, and a couple of them were more rapidly decaying than others, but from a distance. They looked much nicer now. Paint must last longer in Alaska than it does further south. I I think it's because there's less ultraviolet light to break down the paint. We only had to do it once. So what was there? Now, there were a few workshops near the water that breakup destroyed, but somehow the boathouse always survived the spring. It wasn't much good as a boathouse since the water was too shallow underneath it, but with a new floor, it became a very nice cabin on the water. Up the stairs to the roof was an expansive deck with a walkway that led directly to the main cabin. Behind the uh, cabin and to the right, there was a bathhouse. Yes, there was a bathhouse. This was one of the best features of the entire layout. You know, periodically we would start up a small five horsepower generator in the bathhouse attached to a pump. And that pump would take water through a hose from 20 feet offshore and send it up through hoses to two different places. In the attic of the main house and on top of the bathhouse roof were two 50-gallon oil drums. And after filling them up to the top, we would turn off the generator and have running water in both buildings. And in the bathhouse, we had running hot water in the summer because the drum was painted black and the sun would heat the water up. And inside... The bathhouse was an oil heater, a shower, and an old-fashioned drum-shaped washing machine with a ringer on top. On laundry days, we would fire up the oil heater, wash, ring, rinse, ring, then hang up all our clothes on the line outside. And afterwards, there were hot showers and a sauna for everyone. Often, the clothes would get rained on. My mother always felt that that was an extra rinse. All I know is, It's the cleanest I've ever seen my clothes. The ringer tended to pop off buttons, though. Beyond the bathhouse was an army surplus Quonset hut where Mom set up a weaving studio to continue her work. I always liked going up to her workshop to say hello, just like at home in the basement. Up the hill and on the left, there were two outhouses, each with their own copies of Montgomery Ward's catalogs. Now, traditionally, catalogs have a double use in outhouses as reading material, and should one run out of toilet paper as spares. Now, behind that was another Quonset hut covered in clear plastic instead of olive green fabric, and it served as a a greenhouse. 
To the left was another sleeping cabin and the ice house. And further back was the dump, then the airfield. And down the hill from the main house was the bunkhouse and the honeymoon suite, along with a canoe, a little rowboat, a small motorboat, and a kayak. And in between was our spare refrigerator. Now, it was basically a hole in the ground with a stripped-out refrigerator that had been placed in the hole on its back. The, the lid was then covered with moss. It would stay cold all summer because it was embedded in the permafrost. To me, it, it really felt like getting something for nothing. Down a long path to the right of the main house, past a quarter mile of blueberry bushes you could harvest by reaching out your hand as you walked past, was a high bluff made of sand facing the south end of the lake. The wind blew constantly there, and as one stood at the top, it was possible to see miles of lake and forest with the usual no signs of human life anywhere. My brother and sisters and I spent a lot of time there. There was a theatricality to the sand cliffs, unlike any other part of our home in the bush. It was around this time that my brother and I read The Count of Monte Cristo. The cliffs were perfect for imaginary sword fights, and the sand cliffs were easily dug into caves for all of us to play in. The careful digging out of sand was not unlike the careful digging out of prison walls over the ocean below, just like in Dumas' story. We certainly hurried along the process of erosion with our digging, but there were no beach homes at the top of the bluff, so we felt it was probably okay. We spent a lot of time those summers reading. My father challenged us by saying, if you read 100 books of my choosing, I will give you $100. Well, we were all good readers, but I think he wanted to make sure we were reading challenging and enriching books. And sometimes we were allowed to read something of our own choosing for fun. For me, that was science fiction and everything Kurt Vonnegut ever wrote. My seventh grade English teacher found that to be a little odd. But Vonnegut's writing helped me find humor in bleakness and look beyond the facade. His book, Slaughterhouse-Five, should be required reading for any 12-year-old who thinks war is exciting. Leo Tolstoy's book about Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812 was less persuasive to me, but it was required reading, according to my father. and Everyone had to read War and Peace, and it was a slog. To a 12-year-old, the book was 1,200 pages of Russian names with a little bit of dialogue and very little action in between. Otherwise, Dad's reading lists were more individualized according to our interests. My brother read Jules Verne and Ray Bradbury while I was given H.G. Wells and Robert Heinlein. We both read Alexander Dumas, of course. My sisters were given Louisa May Alcott, Jane Austen, and the Brontes. And after the challenge was over, we ended up reading each other's books. But in the meantime, we all had our own lists, and we all worked towards 100. It took a while. After the first blush of excitement and greed wore off, we relaxed into our reading and just always made sure to keep updating the lists. At the lake, we would read anywhere, on the deck, on the bluff, or in a cot inside. My favorite place to read was in the main house, in a comfortable chair. If it was raining outside, raindrops on the metal roof, oh, was the most 
relaxing sound I knew. One morning after breakfast, I sat down to read Princess Bride by William Goldman. It was made into a movie in the 1980s, but in the 1970s, it was just another paperback book lying around. And somehow, Mr. Goldman managed to distill all the fun and excitement of 19th century adventure stories into a new story. I didn't read it. I devoured it in one sitting. At some point around lunch, I read the last page. Then after going to the bathroom and getting a bite to eat, I sat down and read the entire book again before dinner. I've never, I've never done that before or since. You know, today people binge watch their favorite television series. Well, that day was the most satisfying binge read ever. I longed for company. We were all together, of course, which made it easier, but we were so far away from others, and I missed seeing people that I didn't know so well. That didn't seem right somehow. Isn't it enough to be with your family? It was hard to admit this at the time because I didn't want to appear to be ungrateful, unloving, or just not nice, but it was true. Family is not enough. I need strangers, too. Around the lake system, there were quite a few people, but spaced miles apart. There were no telephones up there, but everyone had a citizen band or CB radio tuned to the same channel. In an emergency, the lodge at the base of Lake Louise did have a phone connection and could get messages out to people over the radio. Of course, there were no cell phones at that time. The CB two-way radios, well, they were a big deal in the 1970s. There was a hit song in 1975, um, C.W. McCall's Convoy, which was mostly made up of truckers talking to each other in radio slang. We all learned from Mr. McCall to say 10-4, good buddy, instead of yes, and what's your 20 for where are you? And everyone started installing radios in their cars, usually under the dash. And for some reason, even then, people wanted to talk to someone while they were driving. I think it helps with the loneliness. Now, unlike a cell phone, the microphone in a CB was a separate piece shaped like a bar of soap attached with a phone cord to the main radio. Now there was a button on the side that one would push to talk and everyone tuned to the same station could then hear whatever you said. There were a lot of listeners on the lake. My parents described the radio as a party line where you could listen in on everyone else's conversations. And that's what we did, of course. Everything from funny things that someone's nephew was doing or about problems fixing a generator to updates on when someone was going to town. And during storms, everyone was particularly breathless as we worried about boats caught in a storm on the lake or making their way through a channel. And everyone heard about us too. Everyone knew when my father arrived from the city and someone would let us know if he had sent a message earlier they also knew about every time we called for help with something mechanical or about how we accidentally put heating oil into the motorboat fuel tank. There was so much advice, stories, and laughter from the village we only connected to on the radio. 
We listened to a lot of music on a cassette player. Dad had put together a collection of classical and jazz music, but it seemed like we mostly listened to Broadway musicals when we were up there. I don't know why. We could only receive one radio station that played country and Western music, which none of us really liked listening to. And however, at night, that station did something wonderful. The music would stop, and the radio announcer would start reading letters, such as, From Bob in Talkeetna to Doris and the kids in Palmer. The job is going well, but it looks like it will be another week before I can come home. Thanks for sending me the box of candy in the mail. All the guys here thank you too. Tell the kids I'll be home in time for the 4th of July and know that I miss you every day and every night. Love, Bob. There were letters from the city, letters about birthdays, about the salmon runs, about people getting married or passing away. All the letters were read by the announcer in a warm but neutral voice. And every letter, though guarded because it was public, was heartfelt. Even though we were miles and miles away from anyone, with our lanterns the only light in a dark night, letters from people all over the state read on the radio made it feel like we were together, as if the distances weren't that far anymore. They also broadcast radio plays. There was a a show called Mystery Theater that was narrated by E.G. Marshall, and every episode began with a screeching door, and every episode had us riveted. I remember lying on the living room floor, just listening and freaking out as the stories unfolded. I feel like I'm really the only one who ever listens to radio sometimes. Now, that's an overstatement, of course. Television and the internet took over from that old-fashioned technology, but not the content. People listened to the radio in their cars and listened to podcasts. Everyone is now listening to stories, so nothing went away. It it just changed. But I miss the low-fidelity sound of radio voices in the quiet darkness and the sounds of no-nonsense love and kisses reaching out across the miles. Martha started her nursing college on Monday. We will probably be she really in likes Anchorage in July and says that she will have weeks two weeks to pick up supplies so before heading back. We should let Eunice know that if I need to bring spare parts for the pump. Take care. I love you.